Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Eleanor Cummins. And I'm Sarah Chodosh. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start out by each kind of teasing uh, a little nugget of information from something that we picked up, either while reporting a story, reading some other great science journalism, or just kind of clicking around on Wikipedia and Twitter, which is also a really important part of being a science journalist. And then we all vote on which story is just so interesting that we have to learn more right away. And once we've all spun our science yarns, we reconvene and try to decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah, why don't you give us your tease first? Thank you. Um, My fact is that in 1993, James Lipton of Inside the Actors Studio fame wrote a book. (laughs) I'm ready. Shook at the mere mention. James Lipton wrote a book that revived a 15th century vocabulary game that gave us the term a pride of lions. I watched so much Inside the Actors Studio with with my sister. She's an opera singer and aspiring actress, or she is an actress, was aspiring when we were like 12, you know. As every every 12-year-old does at some point. (laughs) My goodness. Uh, Wow, James Lipton. Okay, I'm psyched. Eleanor? I don't know how to follow that up. I love James Lipton more than anyone. I, too, um, watched Inside the Actor's Studio as a a kid pretending to be homesick. That's the only way anyone watched that. Because it wasn't on at night. No, it It was was like like 11 a.m. on Bravo. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God, yes. Okay. My tease um, is dogs. Specifically, the best boy of them all. The best? Sorry? Like the best boy, like the... The best dog of them all. Why is he the best? Well, that's the story. (laughs) Okay, sorry. All right. 
to the, the best tease. boy. This is the, the tease, tease is that he's the best, and you don't know why the yet. The tease was too good. Yeah. Um, all right, my tease is uh, mushrooms eating people. Intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, mushrooms eating people is great, but I kind of think we should maybe go with the best boy. Like, maybe we should start out with something yes, light. because I want to know what the best boy is. Yeah. There's two. The curiosity gap is just too much for me. <laughs> this is clickbait, Eleanor, <laughs> and I must have it. All right. I, I will, also about your, your reward best, best boy. impulse. I actually, right before we're recording on Friday, um, I just published a story that is sort of exploring um, the the magic of canine noses and how difficult it is to replicate them. And you can go to popside.com to read that story. Yes, you can. And in the process of reporting it, I came across the story of this little dog named Barry. Um, he was uh, a very famous dog in Switzerland um, because he is credited with saving the lives of about 40 people. So in uh, the Great St. Bernard Pass in Switzerland, um, it was like for a thousand years, basically, um, a place where pilgrims um, would travel through as they like moved through the Alps um, in Europe. And um, obviously a lot of them got lost. It's at a uh, very high altitude, so it can snow like any month of the year. Mm. And there's a large potential for tragedy. And so in um, the mid-17th century, um, the monks working at this um, hospice, um, as it was called, so basically sort of like um, just like a station at, for people as they moved through, you know, a place to stay, a hostel really, um, they decided to uh bring on dogs um, to like search for people who got lost in the Alps in the snow. This one dog became incredibly famous. Um, he is like literally like the stuff of legend. I have a photo of Barry here. Um, it looks like gilded. Is he in front of an actual gold wall? Is that a stuffed I believe, berry? I believe it is a stuffed berry. Yeah. Is, is it the berry stuffed? So it is Barry's fur placed on, as, as a lot of taxidermy is, placed on a, a sort of like cast mold of the berry. I see. And how he's he, wearing the silly... the dog while it's alive? Well, I mean, he died naturally, um, but, but this okay. is getting ahead of the story. Sorry. So, he um, just looks resplendent. Go to popside.com to see more. Yeah, he really, he really does. And he's wearing this little like barrel around his neck because there was uh, a legend, is not true, that, uh, that these dogs carried like a whiskey flask with them wherever they went because <laughs> yeah. they were just the most helpful. So was that what St. Bernard's used to look like? Because that does not look like what St. Bernard's looked like today. Uh, yes. So this is part of the story. So, okay, so he's... just really spoiling everything. He is credited um, with saving a half-frozen boy who he flipped onto his back and carried to safety, um, as well as 39 other people. And it's also said that he was bayoneted to death by one of Napoleon's oh. soldiers who mistook him for a wolf. These oh. are not true things. Oh, that's oh, good. Okay. <laughs> what is true um, is that he uh, he definitely saved a lot of people. Um, the like dog sort of pack over the like 200 years where the monks were doing this are credited with saving 2,000 lives of mm. sort of like wayward pilgrims. They actually have this amazing legacy that you already hinted at, which is that they are the, the sort of like er dog that became uh, the St. Bernard breed. So um, this dog, they, they think that the Romans may have brought um, like a, a dog from Asia um, that they were breeding for a time. It was like short haired. Um, and so the monks in this pass had those dogs um, like the the pass sort of sits. It's in Switzerland, but it sits um, right above 
um, like modern Italy. In the 1800s, they were finally convinced that the dogs were too cold all the time. Um, so for just like <laughs> centuries, they'd been suffering. Um, so they decided to breed them with like a longer hair breed. Um, some people I found uh, were suggesting that it was like bred with Newfoundland um, dogs, but but it's not really um, sure. But yeah, like Barry was sort of like... Uh, a kind of like he didn't have the jowls that you now think of, and his head was much slimmer. His skull, by the way, is on display in a museum because they love this guy that much. Wow. Um, I hope people love me enough to put my skull on display in a museum. It's too bad, honestly, that we don't like because we have wax museums, but we don't we don't do the same thing with people. We don't feel that it's okay to like stuff them and place them on except a for Jeremy Bentham, body. who is who <laughs> has been yeah Jeremy Bentham. He's like stuffed at the University College London, and his head rolled off. Is this the weirdest what? thing I learned this week? <laughs> yeah. The weirdest thing I learned this week. Yeah. He wanted to be taxidermied upon death. So, like, the way it works is that they they tried to to do, like, a basic taxidermy process, but it doesn't take very well to humans. Like, your skin gets really leathery and you look horrible. Um, and so now they have this, like, wax mold of his body, but on his real bones. And it was recently brought <laughs> oh, no. to New York um, as part of an exhibit. But most of the time it just, like, sits in this in this college uh, university hall. Somehow the wax on top of the real bones is so much worse than if it was just yeah. his mummified body. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I was just like very taken by this idea that like a dog could sort of become like a real dog could become a national hero in that way. Like I feel like there are like some famous dogs in the United States. <laughs> like, yeah. And I was going to say like um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's dog Fala, who I'm just a big fan of, um, a little Scotty. Um, but like nothing really like on this level. Like there have been like movies made in Switzerland. Like the breed is like now the the like the official national breed, the Saint Bernard. Um, like it's just oh, that's sad because there's a dog that is the Swiss Mountain Dog, mm. and that's not the national dog of Switzerland. Yeah, I think that the more I've looked into this, that they may like countries may have many dogs that they're trying to preserve. But but yeah, Barry's pretty special. This was sort of the first case of dogs being used in like search and recovery um, but like we were talking about all the different ways that they've since become uh, really useful for like their olfactory ability you Sarah had like one specific kind of thing that you were talking about yeah so I found this fact that when especially during the 9-11 search and rescue operations because there were so many dead bodies in the rubble that they were trying to dig up the dogs who were out there looking for the bodies got really depressed because they kept finding dead people and they're trained so differently like there's cadaver dogs and then there's live search and rescue dogs and so they planted like just like the firefighters <laughs> would just like hide in the rubble and then the dogs would find the firefighters and they would be like oh you're such no. a good boy you did it so good and I like I found this I did find a reference to it in like a like a newspaper from 2001 but I don't, like, other than that, I didn't find a ton of references, so, like, someone on Twitter, tell me if I'm wrong, totally wrong about this, but this is a story I've heard repeated, like, many, many times. That is more tragic than I even thought it was. I know. Yeah, because, like, I was reading up on the St. Bernard, and, you know, they were talking about how they're no longer really used for search and rescue because they're too heavy to retrieve with, like, a helicopter <laughs> in an emergency. Oh yeah, the new, the new oh breed. Oh, my God. The also, slobber alone. They slobber, yeah, right? so much. Yeah, so... Probably used to be frozen on their face, I imagine, yeah. in the Alps. The slobber thing, did you know, is um, because of the shape of their jowls. Like, Newfoundlands have the same thing. They don't produce more 
saliva than other dogs. They just, just don't swallow it. It just comes out of their mouth. What did we do to dogs? We did. We're so. We should talk Sarah, about that yeah. next. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah has written a lot about uh, dog breeding and the terrible, terrible things we've it done. Terrible. Well, it's kind of interesting, like because as you can hopefully you're all looking at bobside.com so you can see the picture of Barry um, so resplendent who yeah he's he's adorable but like he def you would never look at him and say like oh that's definitely a St. Bernard but he he was alive before purebred dogs were a thing which like I'm not sure how many people know that just the Victorians were the ones who decided purebred dogs should exist and they're the reason that all purebred dogs now have like really awful health problems yeah right? No, it's definitely, like, tragic sort of thinking about, like, how recent this is. Like, the, the Barry dogs were originally, like, of that era. They they now, as a group, have been sort of referred to as Barry dogs. Um, they were, like, the size of German shepherds at the beginning. Interesting. Um, but then the eventually the, the, what is it called, the stud list was closed, um, which is essentially, <laughs> yeah. like, a euphemism for being, like, now we are only breeding the dogs we already they have were, they were literally characteristics. They, not euphemistically, they were called stud books. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But, like, yeah. So, so during the Victorian era, as Sarah said, you know, once people decided that purebred dogs were going to be a thing, that meant deciding which dogs counted as being members of each breed. So they made these specifications and then you had to go and presumably pay yeah. and have somebody examine your dog. Of course you had to pay. <laughs> of course. That was why it existed. <laughs> of course you had to pay. And uh, only if they fit these criteria that had been set could they be put on this list of purebred dogs. And then the stud list was closed. Yeah, so and, and the gene it. pool with it, <laughs> um, which is not not great biologically. For the record, my family owns purebred dogs, so like I, I, I love Same. them. I love all dogs. Let's be honest. But if you're a purebred dog breeder, please don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> don't close off the gene pool. It's a it's not bad helping. idea. Yeah, Eleanor wrote that story um, for the magazine about the. Lundahund? Right, yeah. There's a Norwegian dog that um, had the severe bottleneck. They think that there were two bottlenecks where there were only five dogs left of the species. So they had like a relational coefficient of like 85% or something. Like they were so inbred. And uh, a relational coefficient. Like they're talking about how, just how inbred they are. Like when you're like looking at the, um, like trying to like, parse the genes and see mm-hmm. where they come from like 85% of them just sort of like turn back into a circle and we're like yeah. oh this is the same source so like if you like the offspring of two siblings I think has a relational coefficient of like 0.25 right. and like many 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 purebred <laughs> all of them have a relational coefficient over 0.25 yeah and so then if you just keep inbreeding the same um, relatives it gets worse and worse um, and so there's a, there's been an effort in, in Norway to sort of like rehabilitate these dogs um, and breed in um, other sort of similar species um, so that they don't have all of these like intestinal issues and you know kind of um, make them healthier again but it has been met with a lot of resistance people definitely um really still hold the uh, idea of a purebred dog very close and they think that you know you're sort of diluting um the brand honestly mm, i was gonna mm. say purity but brand was a nicer way to put that <laughs> this was supposed to be our happy story and yeah. it's it kind of on a little bit of a bummer note i will say that barry was not bayoneted and he died peacefully <laughs> with the monks he loved in 1814 oh, uh, that's so sweet that's good that was a nice end note yeah. On, on that note, let's uh, take a quick break. It's been scientifically proven that Monday is the worst day of the week. 
or at least it used to be, because now that's when you can expect new episodes of PopSci's other podcast, Last Week in Tech. Every week, we recap the big technology stories that you may have missed while you were furiously refreshing your Twitter feed, hoping that Elon Musk tweeted something else really ridiculous. You could subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or SoundCloud. Now, back to the weirdest thing I learned this week. And we're back to the weirdest thing I learned this week. And I think Sarah is going to uh, tell us about... Regale you with James Lipton quotes. Not even quotes. Um, so as a, as a reminder, my fact was that uh, James Lipton in 1993 wrote a book uh, reviving a 15th century vocabulary game that gave us the term a pride of lions. Um, so I came across this fact because I made a snarky comment in our morning <laughs> meeting the other day um, about collective nouns. I think Joe, our editor-in-chief, Joe Brown, said like a parliament of owls, and I was like, that was just a bunch of old white dudes in the 17th century who thought like a parliament of owls that's so funny <laughs> and I as it turns out I was wrong it was a 15th century man who thought that a parliament of owls was was really funny but actually it began with a woman what I know I was oh. really disappointed to find this out I mean it was mostly men it was mostly men who perpetuated it but so I I spent a lot of time looking up um collective nouns or uh, terms of venery as they were known. Venery today means like a sexual indulgence, but back then it meant hunting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just Weird. to be clear. Um, so it began with um, a woman named Juliana Burners, or perhaps Julian's Burness or Julian's Barnes. Um, no one seems to be totally a clear. A barn of Julian's. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. <laughs> she was a prioress in Herefordshire. Uh, in England, mm-hmm. um, and she wrote the Book of Saint Albans or the Book of Saint <laughs> Albans. The spelling was questionable in the late bookie. medieval area. Um, yeah, old bookie. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, it was published in 1486. Uh, it was probably her. There's like a third of the book is attributed to her, and then over time, people just attributed the entire thing. Uh, it is treatises on hawking, hunting, and heraldry. Oh, I know. <laughs> those it. those were her three loves because I guess as a prioress, as a woman, <laughs> you like you didn't have to marry, and I think she was some kind of royal prioress, so she had money, I guess, mm. and so she got to just like hunt and hawk and herald. Um, heraldry is heraldry is like coats of arms. Right. Um, it was the first book to be like have color images to be printed in England and then for like centuries it was the only book to be printed in more than two colors <laughs> which is just a fun little side fact I found uh, but in the hunting section there is a list called the companies of beasties and fowlies which is adorable uh, and it's 165 collective nouns for animals and also a bunch of joke ones like a, <laughs> a diligence of messengers a superfluity superfluity I'm not really sure a superfluity of nuns and uh, I'm sorry to disappoint we got a gaggle of women from this book which is a little I always find a gaggle of women to be kind of demeaning maybe they used to say a giggle of women (laughs) (laughs) so she she compiled this list I guess or someone did under her name um and this whole book was just like a, it was a handbook for gentlemen, you know, lest you go on a hunt 
and you accidentally use the wrong term for <laughs> a group of boars, uh, and everyone laughs at you and knows Tragic. that you're not really an, a noble born. Um, I have some collective nouns because I figured I couldn't bring this up without sharing some, um, such as a, a sleuth of bears or a sloth of bears, which I think is pretty confusing. Uh, a sounder. <laughs> Just a whole sloth. A whole of sloth them. of them. Um, an erst of bees. That's weird. Mm. I also found a grist of bees. Uh, a, a, sou- a sounder it's, of... It's <laughs> called a hive. Please. Or a swarm. Yeah. Um, Depending on the situation. A sounder of boars, but only if there's 12 or more. <laughs> a, Just gotta stop and count. You have to count. Um, a skulk of foxes. A mm-hmm. plague of grackles. A What's ca- a grackle? It's a kind grackle's of bird. a bird. Okay. Uh, like a big black one. Okay. Um, a kettle of hawks. A flother of jellyfish. <laughs> That's a good one. I really like the word flother. Uh, a kindle of kittens. That's cute. Yeah. Uh, a bouquet of pheasants and a murmuration of starlings, which I thought was interesting because a murmuration is actually like when you have like a bunch of, uh, it's especially birds, but also insects, like a huge cloud of them. And they sort of like seem to move as one big mm. cloud of things. That's called a murmuration. Um, but apparently it's also for a group of starlings. So it was originally in this, the book of St. Albans. And then um, the tradition got revived again in 1595 by Gervais Markham, who wrote The Gentleman's Academic. <laughs> and then there was another reprinting of the original book of St. Albans, but with like a foreword added to it in uh, 1881 because Victorians loved it, as you can imagine. They loved their collective nouns oh, and sure. how arbitrarily erudite <laughs> it was to know all the proper terms for the groups of animals. They did love the arbitrarily erudite. Yeah, but I, I, I brought it up because I, I, I think it's interesting that like now some of them, like a pride of lions or a pod of dolphins or whales, I think is the same term. Um, now we kind of think of some of those as somehow scientifically mm-hmm. accurate, mm-hmm. but they were all just just groups for names invented by mostly men, it seems, to make other men feel like they weren't noble enough. And that's kind of weird. I did also stumble upon um, in the Wikipedia, like the discussion page where the editors talk about what gets to be on the page of the list of collective nouns for animals. (laughs) There is a paragraph where someone suggested literally a few days after the infamous binders full of women comment from Mitt Romney, someone suggested that they add binders full of women (laughs) to that list. And then there were a bunch of people being like, This was just used as a popular reference. This term has only existed for a few days. We couldn't possibly add it to this venerated list of (laughs) Wikipedia collective nouns, which I think is especially ironic because they're they're all just made up. Like, I know all words are made up, but these especially were just literally someone was like, a shrewdness of apes. Let's do that. We're going to go with that for now. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Speaking of the idea, though, that that all words were are fake, I was reading this fascinating Atlas Obscura story that was talking about how all of the words that we use that are like kind of associated with um, scary things like bears and stuff like that are really like a, a proxy word for what the true word was one time when you didn't want to speak the word to conjure the thing. So, like, the words that have been handed wow. down are actually sort of, like, safety fill-ins oh my God. for tell the us, true wait, thing. Like, tell us some of the true scary words I want to conjure a bear. <laughs> I don't remember. Well, we don't, well, actually, we don't know because, like, they haven't been passed down. This was sort like, of, like, just in no an oral tradition. Down. Wow. And and so everything, we, we sort of, like, have a shadow language now. Wait, so what were some of the words, though, that have been passed down that were just 
meant to not conjure things. So one example that they were talking about, which is less about like the natural world than about like spirituality, was talking about how like in um, the Talmud and in like uh, Judaism, like Yahweh is also sort of like a shadow mm, language right. word for how you refer to God because you don't actually use his real name. Um, and so like there are a bunch of different, like even my using Yahweh is sort of like, a, uh, like a sort of like random chance kind of situation because there were a bunch of different ways that it that this shadow word was used and referred to and pronounced, hmm. um, and so it's just you know we we are left with sort of that um, remnant of it. And if you dig back, you see uh, you know a little bit more, um, but you can't ever really go back to the source when people were just sort of like speaking these things and, and making rules around it. Hmm. I just think linguistics is like a really underappreciated world. I don't know. I feel like I, I went through this. Um, we're just going to talk about my personal journey now. Um, I feel like when you're in high school and you're a nerd, you kind of have this idea that because you know all the grammar rules, you should correct other people sure. on their grammar mm-hmm. and that that's a very important thing for you right. to do in society is to tell I'm, other people when they are wrong about I'm grammar. I'm that that was limited to high school for you. I feel like I know. I'm, let's be honest, it wasn't just high school. Um, but then I, like, I took a philosophy of language class, like a couple of them, and, man, I just came out of those classes feeling like, I mean, the purpose of all language is just to communicate. And as long as we're communicating, why does it, why does it matter? Who cares? That's really beautiful. I enjoy, like, honestly, why should we spend our energy correcting other people on their grammar? Except, except when you have to edit a magazine. So <laughs> I actually time. do spend a lot of my you time. You found the application. <laughs> changing. <laughs> but even then, sometimes, sometimes our copy editor, she'll change things. And I'm like this is, I think, I think this is worse and everyone knows what I mean. Why does it matter? And then she has to tell me like, this is how you run a magazine. Thanks, Cindy. Yeah. We love you, Cindy. We do. Yeah. The other linguistic, uh, sort of interesting concept that I have at the tip of my tongue is how, um, like following, well, the Korean war is still ongoing, right? On the peninsula, but following the division of the two countries, um, like the North Korean language has changed a lot from the shared Korean language. And so, um, like people are still able to fairly effectively communicate, but it's a, it's a very different sort of like accent. And some of the words have also changed. Um, and you know, people sort of talk about how, uh, because their political rhetoric, um, is like, extremely like horrible like I mean like really amazing like the like top officials in public statements like curse and call people all kinds of bad names which I guess we're getting a little bit more familiar now Mm, with ourselves um but that it has it has like actually like altered um the the language and there's now sort of uh like different I don't know if you would call them dialects but yeah sort of different subgroups now of the Korean language Hmm. yeah I think we forget how quickly language evolves and that we can, I mean, people are always annoyed when um, dictionaries add new words that they feel like just somehow aren't wordy enough to be a word yet. <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't. I think that's a nice. I think that's a nice thing. I like words, and I'm all for adding more words. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm gonna go conjure a bear, and <laughs> then we'll be back with some more weird facts. Do you wear your pride on your sleeve? 
Popular Science is partnering with Out in STEM to make limited edition t-shirts with a rainbow PopSci logo. 100% of the profits go to Out in STEM, a nonprofit that empowers the LGBTQ community in science, tech, engineering, and math fields. Scoop one up before they're gone. And share on social with the hashtag SciPride. That's SCI Pride. Well, that was a great ad. And here we are for some more great facts. My fact this week is less a weird thing that I learned and more a weird thing that I remembered. Um, I think you're disqualified. (laughs) Yes. Um, Podcast over. Bye. Shut it down. I was kind of tooling around on the internet looking for stuff about um, food products that have poop in them or come from poop Mm. uh, because someone had tweeted at uh, Sophie Bushwick, one of our editors, about uh, tea from insect poop. And I was looking for more info and I really couldn't find, I found one scientific paper and I was like, this really isn't enough to talk about other than the fact that there is tea made from insect poop, uh, purports to have many medicinal properties. Many people love it. Yum. I haven't tried it. Uh, but that got me to like a bunch of weird stuff. I was looking at different alcohols that are traditionally made by people, usually young women, chewing up grain and spitting them in glasses and leaving them to ferment. And then got on this article somewhere about the use of different um, food products in weird ways. And I found the Infinity Burial Suit, uh, which is this thing that started as kind of almost like an art concept and then a TED talk and now is a real product. And it is a suit that you wear instead of being buried in a coffin. And it is uh, designed with a bunch of microbes, including fungi. And it's designed uh, for you to be consumed by those microorganisms when you're buried. My dream. (laughs) Also, same. Yeah. Absolutely my dream. The thing that I got really excited about is that the suit uses oyster mushrooms, uh, which are delicious and one of the easiest things to forage. And it reminded me um, that I could talk about carnivorous fungi, which I love. I did a little bit of mycology, which is a study of fungi back in college, running around the woods with a basket collecting mushrooms. Wow. Which is literally like what mycologists do. It's the best job description ever. I don't think enough people know or we all would have made different life choices. If If I wasn't a science writer, I would absolutely be in mycology right now which would mean I would probably be in the woods right now. The path not taken. Yeah. (laughs) Man. But oyster mushrooms, delicious. Uh, A lot of people have eaten them, even who aren't very adventurous about eating mushrooms because they're pretty easy to get in the store. They're those ones that look kind of, I mean, they look like oysters. They look kind of flat. The gills are on the bottom. They have a very, like, nice but not particularly powerful flavor. They're pretty versatile, and you'll see them growing on... Um, dead trees, but also live trees, usually in, you know, kind of these nice fruiting clusters. Great mouthfeel. Mm. <laughs> yes. Like all mushrooms, really. I did not know that mouthfeel was a real word until like last year when someone used it and I was like, come on, <laughs> let's not just make up words here. <laughs> Sorry. It's as real as a parliament of owls. <laughs> <laughs> so just like there are carnivorous plants, there are some carnivorous mushrooms. By the way, my favorite mushroom fact is that they are actually more closely related to uh, humans than they are to plants. 
when you grow uh, mycelium, so mycelium is the uh, the filaments that uh, fungi send out into the earth and that they you know then use to build their fruiting bodies. Uh, when you build a block of mycelium, it makes a great insulator, and it also feels a lot like human skin. And I was mm. like, that's probably because it basically yes. is. Yes. I'm gagging. <laughs> yeah. We have a block of mycelium, and it touches you back. It does. And uh, so, awful. speaking of mushrooms that touch you back, uh, <laughs> some, some mushrooms uh, are also carnivorous. And... The oyster mushroom is especially cool because they'll encounter a nematode, just a very tiny, tiny worm. It's bigger than the uh, mushroom's filament, but like not not that much bigger. Most carnivorous mushrooms will have uh, some kind of apparatus on the hyphae that's meant to like stick to the nematode, like physically stick it in place. Um, the oyster mushrooms, when there are nematodes present. Uh, the hyphae will produce these uh, appendages that secrete little droplets of a potent nematoxin. So the nematodes will then be attracted to them because it smells like food. And as soon as the nematode encounters the toxin, um, it's like frozen in place. It's totally immobilized. But they're still alive. Researchers think that the reason it doesn't just kill them is because that would attract bacteria who would also try to eat the nematode. So instead... Eliminate the competition. (laughs) Exactly. And they may actually release further antibiotics to keep the Hmm. paralyzed nematode um, free of of microbial growth so that they can uh, infiltrate it. And basically just the, the mushroom grows its mycelium into this tiny nematode until it has killed it by, like, suffocating it or destroying its organs, and then it, it consumes wow. it. I have never seen human centipede because I cannot <laughs> handle horror of any kind, but this is sort of what I imagine happens in that movie. Sure. Let me read this caption from one of the photos that Rachel brought. When a nematode barges through a field of droplets, it is paralyzed within minutes. Like that Barges is- through a field. A beautifully written one, yeah. But two, also so sad for the little that's nematode. By, and that's by uh, George Barron. Barron and Thorne did did the premiere work on these. And also, so in um, in this one news article I was reading about them, there was something about how the discovery that oyster mushrooms can consume meat was like quote one of those great scientific accidents uh, involving a forgotten petri dish. And I couldn't find anything else. Uh, any other source saying this, but it was in like a real newspaper at one time. I don't know how good of a source that is, but um, saying that they had been collecting carnivorous fungi from soil and growing them on petri dishes, but then one got left behind and grew for so long that it produced a fruiting body and they saw it was an oyster mushroom. So they'd been collecting, you know, the mycelium from the soil that they saw were attacking and eating nematodes, but they did not actually know that those were related to these fruiting bodies until later. Um, Which is wild to think about now because now we have such a uh, robust knowledge of like the DNA of different mushrooms. But I guess at the time it was like, you know, you either had the mycelium in the ground connected to a fruiting body or you didn't really know which mushroom it came from Hmm. or which mushroom it produced rather. Sorry, mycelium. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's super wild that... Uh, oyster mushrooms, which are some of the like least dangerous mushrooms for 
a forager to get, at least as I was taught. There's not a lot you can confuse them for that will really hurt you. Um, but they're super dangerous to nematodes in like a really scary alien way. <laughs> and it, it is like largely, in at least in nature, right, when you're not like built in a suit, it is like pretty specific to the nematode like you're not no one else is in danger it's just it's just the nematodes right because if if you're thinking about how it works you know there first of all this nematode specific toxin both in design and dose so um you know a human you know a, a small animal in the forest let alone a human is not going to be affected by that toxin so you would have to be like laying in the dirt so that the mycelium (laughs) was all around you and you would have to stay still long enough for them to spend... To enter your mouth. Yes. And given our relative size, because a nematode, you you know, yes, um, mycelium can burst through a nematode's body in less than a day, but they're (laughs) very wee. They're tiny little things, um, not much wider than a human hair. So if you think about like how long a human would just have to be like, yep, this is it. I'm waiting for death, uh, waiting for this mushroom to keep growing inside me until I die. It's it's nigh impossible. You would starve to death first, I think, or die of dehydration. So there's this term, uh, mycoremediation, for you know when a fungi are breaking down components of something, kind of reusing it. They're really good at cleaning up really bad stuff. They're really good at like pulling heavy metals from the soil. People have tested cleaning up um, toxins like polychlorinated biphenyls with oyster mushrooms and other mushrooms. And so the death suit, the infinity burial suit, sorry, uh, uses, the idea is that the mushrooms will uh, help break down the kinds of things that are in your body when you die, you know, the chemicals that we've picked up in the course of being humans who uh, deal with pollution and eat terrible things and put cosmetics that are super unregulated on our faces and things like that, and that it will be better for the environment than if they were just leaching into the soil. Wow. I think that's so cool. Okay. So that sort of reminds me of like in the Zoroastrian religion in like Iran, mm-hmm. um, they treat their dead by putting them on these towers um, to be uh, sort of washed away by rain and eaten by vultures. And so what has happened is in the modern era, because um, practicing Zoroastrians still do this, um, the vultures have become sick and like died off, they think largely Mm. because they've been consuming all of the horrible things we put into our bodies and aren't able to withstand it. That's awful. Yeah, that's just like really cool though, the idea. Like uh, that has actual repercussions. Those, uh, you know, the the kind of like toxins that you're talking about. So having a way to sort of isolate them or remove them from the the larger environment is really cool. Did you know that uh, when vultures eat prey, they very often go for the butt first? Wow, thank God we got butts in there, first of all. It's one of the weakest points of entry on any animal. Wait, is that why it is? Yeah, well, especially when they're eating animals like um, like a hippo or something. I see. Or an elephant. Poke the tuckus. (laughs) (laughs) And they also, like, uh, scientists are studying the the microbiome of vulture guts because they're like, how do they do it? (laughs) Yeah. We'd love to get some of that. That's incredible, because I was going to say it seems like you probably wouldn't maybe not want to go for the butt first because you're just going for the part that has the most potentially 
hazardous bacteria for you. But they just it's all relative when you're a vulture (laughs) eating a rotting corpse. Um, Speaking of eating a rotting corpse, though, uh, the the people who make Infinity Barrel Suit do not recommend eating mushrooms that you find on top of one of their graves. Damn it! uh, Because research is still ongoing. Uh, with regards to like what compounds show up in the fruiting bodies if if the mushroom has helped break them down. We know that they can have heavy metals in them just like plants uh, can leach heavy metals from soil and, you know, get in your body if you eat them. So definitely learn to forage for mushrooms. Probably don't eat them off of dead people. Okay, it's time to vote. What was what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Definitely the taxidermied man. Yeah, it was a taxidermied man. Whose name I've forgotten. Jeremy Bentham. <laughs> Jeremy Bentham. For the first time in the podcast history, we we're going to have a fact win that was not actually a pitched fact. <laughs> Thank you all so much. I'm honored. Yeah, that was wild. That's, that's what I'm going to keep sharing with friends and family. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or SoundCloud. And if you like us, please rate and review us on iTunes. Leave a weird fact in your review, and we might feature it on the show. You can buy our merch, including limited edition SciPride t-shirts and The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week tote bags at popsci.threadless.com. Our theme music was produced by Billy Cadden. Our editors are Jason Letterman and Lexi Krupp. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.